Welcome to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Throughout each semester, the entire campus gathers for worship through song and a biblical, challenging, and encouraging message. Speakers include pastors, professors, and local business and nonprofit leaders. At Criswell, we believe spiritual life is vital for everyone, and that is why Criswell's goal in chapel services is to emphasize loving the Lord with all our heart, all our mind, and all our strength. We cultivate leaders who are ambassadors, cultivators, peacemakers, problem solvers, and professionals. While chapel services are tailored to students, we're encouraged by all our guest speakers by knowing that the practicality of what is being spoken is for everyone. To learn more about Criswell College, visit criswell.edu. Thank you for joining us. Today we'll be hearing from Dr. Scott Camp. Dr. Scott Camp has a unique blend of life experience that give him a powerful, relevant ministry to reach the unreachable with the message of Christ. Dr. Camp has served in a variety of capacities since entering vocational ministry in 1982, including student pastor, evangelist, church planner, college professor, and dean of students at Criswell College. He has been the senior pastor of four growing congregations across the DFW Metroplex. Dr. Camp now travels extensively throughout the United States, Eastern Europe, Mexico, South America, Pakistan, and the continent of Africa, preaching at churches, citywide crusades, and conferences. Dr. Camp currently serves as the faculty chair of evangelism at SUM Bible College and Theological Seminary in Oakland, California. Dr. Camp holds a Master of Arts in Theology from Criswell College, graduating summa cum laude. In addition, he holds a Master of Divinity from Southwestern Assemblies of God University and a Master of Theology degree from Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. In 2007, he was awarded an Honorary Doctor of Divinity from St. Thomas Christian College in Jacksonville, Florida. In addition, Scott has done doctoral studies at Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, Baylor University, and Southern Evangelical Seminary. Without further ado, Dr. Scott Camp. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Holy Spirit of God, we welcome you in this place. We pray that you would come and change our lives. Lord, we don't want to just have another chapel service and go about our business. Come and move us with compassion. And Father, I pray you'd give us the heart of Jesus for all people all over the world who are hungry and they're thirsty and they want to know what life is about and they want to know how they can find something the world has been unable to give them. Lord, I pray for family members. How many of you have a family member that does not know Jesus? Lift up a hand. Father, I pray for our moms. I pray for our dads. I pray for our brothers and sisters. Father, for people that we love and care about. Jesus, people for whom you shed your blood. Father, we're asking you to do for them what you did for us. Lord, I'm asking you to do for them what you did for me 43 years ago in a jail cell in Fort Worth. Lord, you're the changer. You, you can change people. Come on, somebody, help me out. You can change the hardest heart. Oh, God, give us passion and faith to believe that not only we but our household shall be saved in Jesus name and Lord let us testify of miracles that started today 
in our lives. Lord, I pray for somebody who's discouraged today. Lord, the semester hadn't even been uh, for a month yet, and they already feel like quitting. Lord, I pray you'd encourage them today. Lord, there's too much at stake to quit in Jesus' name. Father, pour water on the thirsty today. Father, somebody who's really not where they need to be in their walk with you. They're at, they're at Bible college. They're learning theology and Greek and church history. But, Lord, their hearts are really far from you. Lord, I pray you bring them back to the main thing. Lord, just to fall in love with you all over again and to fall in love with people. And, Lord, will you use us for your glory. We thank you for this college, all it means to all of us. Thank you for our president. Bless him today. Lord, most of all, thank you for the cross and the empty tomb. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen, amen, amen. Give the Lord a shout of praise. Amen. You may be seated. How many of you are glad to be here? Let me see your hand. How many would rather be here than in jail? Amen. Praise the Lord. Me too. Well, it's great to be here, Mr. President. Thank you, my longtime friend who I love. And what a great spirit is in this place. Amen. Good to see you. And uh, I live in West Africa. Now, Gene and I, two years ago, sold everything we had and uh, sold our beautiful home God gave us and sold our cars sold all of our stuff, gave a lot of it away, took everything we had left, put it in a little storage unit, and we followed the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit to leave the United States, our four children and our three grandchildren. That somehow didn't make it on the little presentation, but we have three grandchildren. Amen. One for the Father, one for the Son, and one, amen. And uh, we moved over. To reach people who need Jesus. And uh, that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want you to take your Bible and turn to the Gospel of John. And I hope everyone has a Bible or maybe you have a phone. Maybe you could look on with someone sitting around you. They could put it on the screen. John chapter 1. And this is what John says about Jesus in verse number 9 of the prologue of John's Gospel. One of the most magnificent pieces of literature, not just sacred scripture, but in all of literature. This prologue that helps us understand who Jesus is and why Jesus came. John chapter 1 and verse number 9, look at this. He, this one, this one, this Jesus is the true light, the one who gives light to all men who are coming into the world. Jesus is the true light who gives light to every man, every black man, every Latin man, every Asian man, every white man, every gay man, every straight man, every Democrat, every Republican, everyone who's ever lived and drawn breath on planet Earth has a deep longing to be connected to the Creator. Amen. Come on. And there's only one way that can really fully become actualized, and that is in and through what God has done for us in the person of Jesus Christ. This came very home to me. I was in a village 
way up in the north in a remote village. I had preached that Sunday for a young man named Dominic Zeba. Dominic grew up in a village where his father was both the nana, the, the chief, and the fetish man, what we would call the practitioner of voodoo or juju. And he was a traditionalist, but he knew in his heart that there's a creator. And so Dominic, as a young man, began to hunger and thirst to know the creator. You see, in West Africa, they believe there's one creator God, but they say you can't get to him. You have to go through intermediaries, and those are the departed ancestral spirits, and so they go make sacrifices in order to get a message to the Creator so the rain will fall on their crops and their wives will bear children and their cattle will be productive. And so Dominic began to hunger and thirsty knew there was something beyond that. And he told me a story. He said, I heard that there were some Obruni, there were some white people who had moved into the village not far from our village, and they had come to talk about a different kind of God, a God of love. You didn't have to live your life in fear, always afraid of everything. Every time you do something, something happens. It's an ancestor trying to punish you for not making the appropriate sacrifices. They live a life captive to fear of all kinds. And Dominic said, when I heard about the love, the God who loved me. He said, I was drawn. He said, I began to sneak off to the next village, and I met these white people who had come to share the love of Jesus. He said, it wasn't long before I became a Christian. And he said, I began to sneak off at night to attend their meetings. He, he said, my father heard what was happening, and he became very angry. He said, one night I was coming home, that trail from that village to my village, and there was a lady who came. She also had become a Christian, and she took me by the hand, and she turned me around. She said, Dominic, you're going to stay at our house tonight. And Dominic, he was 15, he said, well, what, well I want to go home. I need to go home and greet my mom and my dad. And she said, no, you need to come with me. And later she told him, your father was hiding in the bushes with a machete and he was going to kill you that night. Dominic got up the next morning, confronted his father, said, Dad, were you going to kill me? The father picked up a machete and said, I'll kill you right now. You have disgraced our family. You have disgraced our ancestors. You have disgraced me in this village. Dominic, fleeing for his life, went to live with that missionary couple and he went off to college. He was going to be a teacher, but in the midst of training to be a teacher, which is a wonderful thing, but God had another plan for Dominic. God called him to the ministry. He later went to the Assemblies of God Seminary where I preach right there at that place and teach right there at that place. And then he went back to the town that was the larger town next to his village, and there he started a church with five people in the living room. And the Sunday I preached there, there were thousands Thousands of people who gather every Sunday out of Islam, out of traditionalism, out of nominal Christianity, who have come to know Jesus Christ. Dominic said, Scott, I know you're tired. I just preached all these services, and we saw so many people come to Christ. And he said, I know you're tired. But he said, can I come by and pick you up early in the morning before the sun comes up? I said, of course. He said, it's very important to me. 
I got up, got in the car the next morning, and we began to go way, way, way down old trails and up and down on dirt roads. And he said, I'm taking you to see my father. He said, my father is now in his 80s. He said, he is still the chief of our village. Where I grew up, he said, he's still the fetish man in our village. But he said, my father was in the hospital, and he just got released from the hospital. And he said, I've been praying for my father. He comes to church occasionally, but he's still hanging on to a lesser light. Come on, somebody. He's, he doesn't know the full light of Jesus. And he said, can you come and talk to my daddy about how he can come to know God in the person of Jesus Christ. And I began to think about this, this whole marvelous work of God that we call the gospel, the good news. How did the gospel get from a backwater town of 30 or 40,000 people. You know, when we read about Jerusalem, we think it's a big, a big deal, and it is to us. But in that day, it was, an, it was an outback kind of place on the periphery of the Roman Empire. And it had 30 or 40,000 people unless it was a high holy day. And the gospel started there with the death and the resurrection of Jesus and began to spread out over 2,000 years till it got to a jail cell in Fort Worth, Texas and, trans and, and, and changed my life and transformed my life. It got over into India with Thomas and all throughout the Roman Empire, the Greco-Roman world through the Apostle Paul and all over the world now, this gospel has spread and is still the answer to the longing of every man's heart. Amen. It's transformed your life. How did this happen? How did Jesus come to be recognized as the true light that gives light to every man? Every man in every continent and every village, every person who is longing and thirsting to know the Creator, how did this happen? Well, I want to suggest to you three things. So take out a pen, pencil, lipstick, mascara, something. Get something you can write with and write down these three things. Number one, these early followers of Jesus had an encounter that forever changed their life. And let me tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't the teaching of Jesus, although Jesus taught like no one's ever taught, with great authority. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount has the power to transform our lives and all the parables that Jesus told. But it wasn't the teaching of Jesus that changed the lives of these early followers because, can I tell you the truth, most of the time, when they walked out of the classroom with Jesus, they were as confused as some of you will be today after your theology class. I mean, they had no clue. And they would talk. What did he mean by, by leaven? What did he mean by a sower went out to sow? And Jesus would spend a lot of time trying to unpack the lesson or the illustration or the example or the parable that he had given. It wasn't the teaching of Jesus. It wasn't even the, the miracles that Jesus did. Because very often, 
the disciples would see, they would experience in their own lives a miracle that Jesus did, and then the very next day they would doubt his ability to take care of their simplest needs. It wasn't the miracles of Jesus. It wasn't the teaching of Jesus. It wasn't the virgin birth of Jesus. It wasn't the life of Jesus. It wasn't even the cross. Can I tell you this? When Jesus hung dying on a cross, all those big, tough, rough guys, you remember Peter, that big, tough fisherman, he said, I'll go with you, and I'll lay down my own life, and I'll defend you, and he pulled out a little pocket knife and tried to take on a whole Roman band of soldiers. It wasn't the cross. When Jesus went to the cross, Peter and all those other big guys were away hiding for their life. They thought, man, if they do that to Jesus, what will they do to us? They thought it was over. They thought they had, they had wasted the last three years of their lives following this man who they thought was the Messiah. Peter said, I'm going to go back into the fishing business and at the foot of the cross, there was a teenager named John and a few women, including the mother of Jesus, who were faithful to the very end of, their, of his life. And even they thought when Jesus said, it is finished, they thought it is finished. And there was a great question mark that hung in the air that day when Jesus died. It wasn't the cross or the teaching or the miracles or the life. Do you know what it was that changed their life? They had an encounter that forever changed their life. And here's what it was. On Friday, they saw and heard that Jesus had died and three days later they saw him come back from the dead. Amen. It was, come on somebody, it was the resurrection. Jesus Christ is not dead. He's not a man in a history book. He's not somebody that we memorialize. Jesus overcame death and he's alive. Amen. Muhammad's not alive, and Buddha's not alive, and Confucius is not alive, and the ancestors are not alive, but Jesus is alive. And that encounter with Jesus forever marked them, and they began to spread out from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and eventually to the uttermost parts of the earth, and the message is still going forth that Jesus is the true light that gives light to every man coming into the world. Number two, they took seriously the last words of Jesus. Now, the last words of Jesus are recorded in all the Gospels. In the Synoptic Gospels, they sound very similar. In John's Gospel, it's the same thing. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you're going to receive power. And when you do, I want you to go. Everybody say the word go. Go. Say it out loud. Go. Listen, there is no gospel if you don't go. Now, I'm a missionary and an evangelist, and I have been since the day I walked out of a jail cell. Man, my life. You know, when I showed up at this school, I'd only been out of jail a few months. I mean, I didn't know anything. I wasn't raised in a Christian home. My wife's dad is 91 years old, and he's still preaching the gospel. Her brother's a pastor. Her sister is married to a pastor. She got saved when she was seven in a tent revival. But I grew up in a bar in a little town called Wichita Falls, Texas. Gina's dad was a preacher. My mama became a prostitute. Gina got saved in a revival. I got saved in a jail cell. But we still have the same passion, the, the, the same message, and the same passion that everyone in here who's been born again. How many of you are born again? Let me see your hand. You're not, you're not, you're not, you don't hope so, maybe so, trying to get, but you've been born again. Come on, let me see your hand. 
if you're born again, then you have one ultimate responsibility in your life. And it is to know Jesus and fall so deeply in love with Jesus that everywhere you go, people see that Jesus is alive in you. Amen. There's no gospel if we don't go. Matter of fact, you can't even spell the word gospel without the two letters G-O. And Jesus is still saying to you, you might not go across the sea like we have, but you can go across the street. You can go across the aisle. Did you know that? You know, I was high my senior year in high school every day. I played football, had a full scholarship to go play college football, and I slept during the first four periods of high school class every day. And my coaches went to the teachers and said, man, just let him alone, let him sleep, give him the lowest passing grade. We need him on Friday night. And so I got high every day on the way to school and slept through the first three or four periods. But in January of 1980, listen, there were three teenage girls that had a burden for my soul. One of them's name is Angela. Another's name is Debbie. Another's name, I can't remember right now, amen. But I still love them, and, and we're still close, Debbie and Kelly and Angela. Thank you, Jesus. And they got a burden for me. They began to pray for me. You know, I found out later that at the beginning, they went to a youth camp, and they, their life got rocked, man, not just for a week or two, but they came back to school on fire for God. And they, I found out later they made a top ten list, a prayer list. They wrote down the top ten worst kids in our high school who they wanted to see get saved before the end of the year, and guess whose name was number one on the top ten list? You're looking at him right now. Only time I was ever number one in anything in high school, I was number one as the worst kid that needed Jesus the most. And they began to pray for me. I found out later that many times, instead of going to the cafeteria and eating their lunch, that they would skip lunch. They would fast. How long has it been since you fasted? Huh? I'm not talking about a diet plan. I'm asking you, how long has it been since you had such a burden for somebody that you know is lost and if their heart stopped beating right now, they'd spend forever separated from God in a place Jesus referred to as a burning, stinking garbage dump outside the city of Jerusalem called Gehenna. Hell. There's a real hell. Amen. It's what Jesus said. How long has it been since your heart was so broken that you couldn't sleep at night? You couldn't eat. And you found yourself on your knees crying out to God. That's what those girls did. And they would go in the library in a public school and they would get a circle of chairs and invite other Christian kids and they'd pray and they'd read the Bible and then they'd get out their list with tears rolling down their cheeks and they'd say, God save Scott Camp. God save Cecil Jimenez. God save Tony Mooney. God save Joe Ballard. God save Steve Phipps. God save Joe Holman. By the way, one of those guys is a missionary with me right now in Ghana in West Africa. That was on the list. Because of their prayers. And then one day in January of 1980, 8 o'clock in the morning in a geometry class, I was asleep and Kelly reached across the aisle and she nudged me. She woke me up. And I looked. You know what I'll never forget, Mr. President? 
that in those big, beautiful blue eyes of that very popular girl in high school, she was, she was popular, she was beautiful, everybody knew who she was, but you know, she came to the point where she didn't give a rip about any of that. All she wanted to do was know Jesus and make Jesus known. Tears rolling down her cheeks at 8 o'clock in the morning. And she said, Scott, do you know why you're so miserable? And I said, why don't you tell me? She said, because you don't know Jesus. And she began to weep. And another girl named Debbie Malone said, Scott, Jesus loves you. You know, I never heard that before in my life. I mean, I grew up in Wichita Falls, Texas. I mean, the only thing, we, we got a barbecue stand, a beer joint, and a Baptist church on every corner in Wichita Falls, Texas. Matter of fact, I grew up in an area called the Dog Patch. My mom was tending bars. She got pregnant with me when she was 15, gave birth when she was 16. By the time she was 19, she was running a bar. And we grew up six blocks from a Baptist church with a big steeple and few people, amen, and a big cross on the top that they never went and took outside of the four walls of the church. As far as I know, six blocks, somebody could have come and knocked on the door and said to my teenage mama, hey, why don't you bring your kids, your half-sister, my half-sister Shelly, and half-sister Sherry, why don't you bring your kids and come to our church? Or better than that, wouldn't you like to give your life to Jesus? I've often wondered what a difference it could have made in my mom's life and in my dad's life and in my life and my sister's life if somebody from that that big old church would have just talked to us about Jesus, but nobody ever came. When's the last time you talked to somebody about Jesus? I want to tell you about half of you in here are backslidden. You're not right with God. Quit playing games. Let me tell you something. If you never talk to anybody about Jesus, it's because you're really not in love with Jesus. Some of you are more in love with theology than you are Jesus. And you'll argue about theology until you're red in the face and about ready to swing on somebody. But when you leave this campus, you never witness to anybody. You never talk to anybody about Jesus. You just like to fuss and fight about it all. And strut around here. Some of you are so cocky you could strut sitting down. Amen. You need to get right with God. It's one thing to know theology. It's another thing to love Jesus. Amen. Angela said, we've all been praying for you. She said, God could do such great things in your life. Jesus loves you. He died for you. And I felt the conviction of the Spirit of God come on my heart. But I was so full of pride and so full of anger and bitterness, I stood up, took God's name in vain, in the middle of the class, said, I don't even believe there is a God. And the moment those words left my lips, man, the Spirit of God convicted me. I walked out. I couldn't take the presence of God in that class, carried by three teenage girls. I walked out into the hall. You know what Kelly did? She just got right up out of her seat, followed me out to my locker, stuck her little finger in my big face, and said, you're the biggest phony at this high school. You think you're big, tough guy strutting up around here? She said, you're the biggest phony. And she said, I'm going to pray for you every day until God changes your life. And then she just turned around and walked off and went back to class. And a month later, I was on my knees looking at five years in the penitentiary, 
in the Tarrant County Jail cell in Fort Worth, and for the first time in my life, I lifted my hands to heaven, and I said, God, if what Kelly said and Angela said and Debbie said is true, Lord, I don't know if it's true. All I know is I'm in trouble, but if you really do love me and sent Jesus to die for me and rose from the dead, then Jesus, I don't know what to say, but come into my life, and like air coming into my lungs, Jesus came to live in my life that day. When I walked in the jail cell, I was one person. When I left that place, I was a brand new creation in Christ Jesus. Amen. Woo! That was 43 years ago, and from that day to this day, I've had one all-consuming passion in my life, and it is to let other people know that what Jesus did in my life, he can do in their life. Amen. I like what that great missionary to India said. He said evangelism is one beggar who found bread trying to show all the other beggars where the bread can be found. Amen. The reason the gospel got from Jerusalem to a jail cell and to North Africa and the northern part of Ghana and all over the world is because people took seriously this great commission. It ought to be, say the word, great commission. Say it out loud, great commission. It ought to be called the great omission in most of our lives and churches. I mean, our Southern Baptists, praise the Lord for them. Everybody say, thank God for the Baptists. A lot of you wouldn't even be saved if it wasn't for the Baptists. I love the Baptists. I preach for the Baptists all over. But they spent three or four days arguing in New Orleans about whether or not women can preach. Man, that got settled on the day of Pentecost where God said, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your, say it church, daughters, your sons and your daughters will preach. Amen. Listen, we need all hands on deck in these last days. You ought to be shouting and saying amen, praise God, and clapping amen. Great commission. Oh, I'm going to preach it. Amen. Might be another 20 years before I get invited back, but I'm going to preach it. We need everybody to take this gospel and go. Amen. Let me give you the third thing, and this is the message, and then I'm finished. They had an encounter that forever marked and changed their lives. Have you had that encounter? Look at me. I taught at this school for five years. Alina Klisho is in heaven right now. One of our top graduates went on to get a Ph.D. from Baylor, was teaching at, Tal, or at uh, Biola or Talbot. I remember when she had just come here from Russia. She grew up in a very legalistic church. I taught personal evangelism. And I had all my students write out their personal testimony. What if I asked you to do that this morning? What would you put down? Well, my mama says that when I was six years old, I went down front and you know, I think even in this room, there are some people, Jesus is all around you, but not in you. You're a member of a church, but I could spit in hell right now and hit a Baptist right on the head. Hell's going to be full of Methodists and Episcopalians and Catholics and Church of Christ. It's not the Church of Christ that saves you. It's the Christ of the church that saves you. Do you know Jesus? That's the issue. And Alina, she began to cry. I was watching her. She put her pen down. She was weeping. And I'll never forget, she came up to me and she said, I don't, I don't have anything to write. I don't know Jesus. 
And I, I, I took her to the side and got some other in fired up Criswell College student. You know, this school has always been known as a place where there was a fire burning for evangelism. And I got these kids over there, man, and Alina bowed her head. But more than that, she didn't just repeat a prayer. I could teach a parrot to repeat a prayer. You're not saved by repeating a prayer after a preacher. Amen. But from her heart came repentance and came a sob and came a cry and cried out to the Lord Jesus, and she was saved. And I began to see a change from that day. You know what she wanted to do? She wanted to go tell all the other people how Jesus is alive, and he had changed her life. They had an encounter with a living Christ. They took the Great Commission seriously. And then let me say this, and this is really what I want to say real quickly. I'm going to have to say it quickly. They told me, you know, at the end we usually have Q&A. I think I'll let the Holy Ghost do the Q&A today. I think the Holy Spirit wants to ask some of you a question. And I think we're going to have to humble ourselves and get honest enough to answer, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, I've lost my passion. Some of you, when you first got saved, man, you were just like those three girls. You used to witness to people and pray for people and weep over But now you're sophisticated. You're a Bible college student. God help us. The third thing is this. They got a Holy Spirit-inspired strategy to begin. You see, what happens is very early on, watch this, watch this. The Jesus movement, if I can call it that, began to overflow the provincial banks of Judaism. And especially with Paul and later John, who left the foot of the cross and eventually took Mary and moved to Ephesus, second only to Athens in terms of great Greek philosophical minds, the Stoics and the Epicureans and all the Socratic and all the other philosophers were there and they loved to hang out and talk about philosophy. And so they began to ask the Holy Spirit of God, give us a spirit-inspired strategy so that we can contextualize the gospel for our generation and for where we find ourselves. And no greater example can be found of that than in the very first four books of the New Testament that we call the, the Gospels or the Evangelist. And when you begin to read in your New Testament survey classes, when you begin to read in New Testament theology classes, it becomes very clear that although the kernel of the gospel is there in every one of these in every one of these four gospels the way in which it the, the message is communicated is highly dependent and contextualized based on the audience that the author is trying to reach can i get an amen out there you see what i'm saying you say, what do you mean contextualization? Well, that's a missiological term. Let me break it down for you, all right? You know what it means to contextualize the gospel? It means to know your stuff, to know who you're stuffing, and to stuff them. Amen. To know the gospel so well that whatever context you may find yourself in, whether it's in West Africa or whether it's in Latin America or Asia or Europe or with the intellectuals or with the pseudo-intellectuals or with somebody that's a gangbanger, wherever you find yourself, you have the ability to put the gospel in that context so they can come to know Jesus. Amen. Come on. So Matthew writes to the the Jews. That's why he's got a long genealogy. 
that shows that Jesus is the king of Israel, directly related to David, the great king, and all the way back to Abraham, the promised seed. And so Matthew's key phrase is, in order that it might be fulfilled. So he has Jesus teaching something, doing something. And then Matthew, because he's writing to Jews, says this was done in order that it might be fulfilled. And because his audience is Jewish, they know the context and they begin under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to come to the conclusion, Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. That's why Matthew's called the lion's gospel because it presents Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's a Jewish gospel. Amen. That's who he's trying to reach. Mark's gospel is probably the first gospel ever written. It's the shortest gospel ever written. It was written by Mark, but, but really it's Peter's gospel. And at the time in which it was written, Peter was living in Rome in the Mamertine prison. He was locked away. And you know what happened to old Peter? He began to get a burden for the Roman people. He began to learn their context and their culture and what would appeal to these Romans. And you know the Romans are kind of like Texans. We don't really care about who you're great, 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 great grandma was. We are people of action. We want to know, does it work? How does it work? Will it work? And so, and so, and so, in order to reach the Romans, Peter strips away the genealogy. He doesn't say anything really about the Jewishness of Jesus. And his key word through Mark is the word immediately or straightway in the old King James Version of the Bible. And he presents Jesus like a Roman, as a mighty man of action. So Jesus cast out a demon. And then immediately he does, he feeds 5,000. And then immediately he calms the storm. And what he's trying to say is, if you're looking for a man of action, you'll find him in Jesus. Amen. Matthew's writing to the Jews. Mark's writing to the Romans. Luke, I have a Greek New Testament here with me this morning. If you read Luke's gospel, you find out that Luke by far has the most sophisticated syntax and the most sophisticated genealogy. And Luke is writing to the Greek philosophical mind. And you know what the Greeks were interested in? They were looking for the archetypical, the perfect human being. They wanted to find out what man at his apex is supposed to look like. And so Luke uses the term son of man. When he gives his genealogy, he doesn't give it on the side of, jo of, of Joseph. He gives it on the side of Mary. He doesn't stop with Abraham. He goes all the way back to the very first man, Adam. And what Luke is saying is, if you're looking for a perfect man, you won't find it in Adam because Adam sinned. But there's another Adam. There's a last Adam who has come. And he is God's final answer to man's dilemma. He, the Son of Man, is the perfect man. His name is Jesus. Amen. But when you come to John... John, you find something altogether different. Because John is not content to say Jesus is the king of the Jews, although he knows Jesus is the king of the Jews. He's not content to say Jesus is a great servant and a mighty worker for God, although he knows that. He's not content to say Jesus is humanity personified and perfected the apex of all God ever meant for a man to be. He knows that about Jesus but John doesn't start with the genealogy of John. You remember how John starts? In the beginning. He's not talking about the beginning of creation in Genesis 1 or the beginning of the gospel in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. He's talking about the unbegun beginning. 
Before there was anything, when there was only God, in the unbegun beginning was, say it, the logos. You know, have you taken Greek yet? The word, translated word, but it's the Greek word logos. The Greek word logos has a great history because the pre-Socratic philosophers Heraclitus, and then later Socrates, and we know this through Plato. They had renounced. They were like prophets to the Greeks. They had renounced the pantheon of, of Jupiter and Mars and Bacchus and all these gods that were made in the images of men. Men loved sex, so they created a goddess of sex. They loved war, so they created Ares. A god. Whatever they wanted to indulge themselves in, they created a god. And so one day Heraclitus and then later Socrates looked around and thought about all that, all these gods that lived up on Mount Olympus. And, and Heraclitus said, you know, there's a Greek word for that, baloney, amen. He said, there's not many gods. He said, there's one God. And he said, that one God is pure spirit, pure intellect, pure mind, pure logic, and though impersonal and unknown to man, he is the eternal mind that holds all of reality together. And do you know what? They begin to refer to this God as the Logos. Now look at me. When John is in Ephesus, like your generation, see you see the things that we did when I was your age in order to reach people, you're going to have to come up with something different. Amen. Don't be afraid. When I first got saved, man, we got up, told everybody to open up to page 232. We had a piano and an organ. Neither one could play worth anything. And we would stand, sing first, third, and last. Somebody said, I'm as lonely as the second verse of a Baptist hymn. Amen. I mean, first, third, and last. And then they would sit down in the pre, I mean, and all that. And you know what? What's happened? 57 million people in America your age, 37 million of them have absolutely no contact with a local church at all. See, you're going to have to ask the Holy Ghost how to reach your generation in this country or wherever God sends you. And you're going to have to be open to the voice of the Spirit and to the Word of God because they never contradict each other. And God's going to have to give your generation a strategy wherever you are. In Africa, we do things different. I'll tell you about that, and then I'm done. And that's what the New Testament, that's what John was doing in hanging out with the philosophers. I hang out with them at Starbucks. You know, I'm at Starbucks. Every, I was at Starbucks early this morning getting my Christian crack. Amen. I mean, I, just, I love it. And, you know, when I'm there, there are all kinds of unbelievers and people from all over the world. And, and you know, I, we, we have to say, Holy Ghost, how can we reach them? And so John, in wanting to contextualize the gospel, began to use the same word. He said, in the unbegun beginning, before there was anything else, there was the Logos. And when he said the word Logos, every Greek philosopher stood up and paid attention. It'd be like me going to a Star Wars convention. Have you ever seen those? I mean, where all these thousands of little nerds come, you know, and they dress up. And if I got up and I said to these Star Wars, in the beginning was the Force. And all the little nerds would say, oh, the Force, the Force. In the beginning was the Logos. 
And the logos, look at this, was prostantheon. The word pros is a preposition to move forward, to proceed. But it's the root word, the Greek word prosopon. And prosopon means face. And I think the way we should understand this is, is what John was saying. Woo, this is good. He said, in the unbegun beginning, before there was anything else, there was the logos. And they said, amen. And then he said, and the logos was face to face with God. And in fact, the Logos was God. And of course, this lays the foundation for what another great African theologian, Tertullian, would later call tres personas una substantia. Three persons, one God. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father. But the Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And these three are one. Amen. You see that? And in Him was life. And the life was the light of all men. And he is the true light to the Stoics and the Epicureans and the traditionalists and the Juju practitioners and the Muslims and the Taoists and everybody in the world. He is the true light that gives light to every man coming in the world. Then he put the cherry on top when he defied the dualism of Platonic Neoplatonism by saying, and the Word stepped out of time, or out of eternity into time and space step down story steps of eternity into time and the word became what say it flesh and that blew their mind because they thought well this is not the pulpit this is the 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 copy this is a shadow the real pulpit is in that realm the realm that and if it ever becomes physical it will be less than perfect and john said no 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 god became a man Two natures in one person. As much God as if he were not man. As much man as if he were not God. The God-man. He became flesh. And he pitched his tent among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten monogenes. The one and only. Not that Jesus was born like the Mormons teach. No. That he is an eternal generation along with the Father. A term of intimacy and relationship. The only begotten Son of God full of. And what the law could not do. And what no law. Well, listen man. What the Muslim law or the traditionalist law or any other law. The law cannot do. God has done done for us in sending his son Jesus who went to the cross and shed his blood and rose from the dead and is the light of all men and so I went to that village and I sat down with that chief somebody tell him I'll be right with him I'm preaching right now I sat down with that priest that fetish man that that nana and his five wives and all these kids and grandkids, the whole village. And I said, tell me, Mr. Zebo, what do you believe about God? See, sometimes the best way to contextualize the gospel is listen before you talk. Amen. Let me say it to this side. Sometimes the best thing to do when contextualize the gospel is to listen before you talk. Amen. This, this side, come on, y'all. He said, well, we believe that there's one creator. But we can't get to him unless we have an, an ancestor, intermediaries. And when we come, depending on what we need, we have to bring a sacrifice. I said, what do you sacrifice? He said, well, blood. 
is the most powerful thing. I said, why blood? He said, there's nothing more powerful than blood because blood is life. This is an African telling me this. He said, so if we're going to build a building or it hasn't rained, we might sacrifice a chicken. If it hasn't rained in months, we might bring a goat. And he said, and our ancestors way, way back would come to these sacred places, a river of water, a pile of rocks, a grove of trees, and they would sacrifice a captured child from a different warring tribe, and they would sacrifice and pour that blood of that human being out because nothing's more powerful than blood, and the most powerful blood is human blood, and the most powerful human blood is innocent human blood. And he said, we did that in the hopes that the Creator would hear us and bless us. And I said, Mr. Zeba, everything you've just said is true. But it's not complete. Can I finish the story? He said, you may. And I saw that old black man lean in. I said, Mr. Zeba, there is one God. He's the creator of all things. We cannot get to him. He has withdrawn himself because of our sin. But we need an intermediary. We need someone who can go and represent us to him and represent him to us. And Mr. Zeba, the good news is an ancestor has already come, and his name is Jesus. And because he came down from God, he represents God. And because he's also a man, he can represent. He knows every fear you've ever had. He knows everything you've ever been through. And he can rep. See, Mr. Zeba, it's like he is a bridge that bridges the gap between us and God. And no one took his life from him. He willingly laid his life down. And he offered himself as a sacrifice. And then three days later, here's the good news, Mr. Zeba. God raised him from the dead so that we would all know for sure that if we would come through his son, then God will bless us and prosper us and forgive us and remove the fear and come and live inside of us and give us a new life. And I said, Mr. Zeba, can I come tell your village about this? <laughs> he said, yes. I said, Mr. Zeba, will you come at night? Because whatever you say, the whole village will do it. Will you, will you come and sit on the front row as my honored guest? He said, I will do it. And so we're now negotiating. I looked at Dominic. He was crying, tears running down his cheeks. As we were walking away, he said, you don't understand. My daddy hates Christians. He, he only comes because I'm the pastor only once or twice a year. And he hates white people because of the colonialism. And he saw what white did to our country when he was a little boy and he said we've just experienced a miracle he said I can't wait till you get back and we can have a crusade in the village and then as we were walking back to the truck I looked around and one of Dominic's big half brothers same daddy different mama he big big strong guy about to go join the army in Ghana he had his hat off and he was walking like a little child behind us and I turned around and the Holy Ghost gave me oh I don't know if you believe all that but if you don't you should believe that everything God did in the book of Acts he still does today amen and so I looked into the eyes of this young man and the Spirit of God gave me a word of knowledge I said why are you following I said you want to become a Christian don't you and he said I'm going to join the army I'm going to lay 
lay my life down on behalf of my country. He said, but I don't want to leave unless I know the God of my brother and the God you spoke about today. And that big old guy dropped to his knees. I got on my knees. Dominic got on his knees. We joined hands. And that young man asked Christ to come and live in him. And when he looked up, his face was a glow with the glory of God. I said, you're not just a soldier in the Ghana army. You're a soldier in God's army now. Go tell. Amen. Go tell. Go tell. That's why you're here. And if you look at me, I know it's lunchtime. Some of you need to fast. I mean, you need to fast and find a place where you can get on your face. Get off Facebook and get your face in the book. Amen. See, that's why you're here. I don't care if you're studying to be a counselor, a school teacher, PPE. You want to be a theologian one day, that's great. John was a theologian. I've been teaching theology for 20 years. But I want to tell you, the main thing is bringing people to Jesus. Because no matter who you are, no matter if you're black or white or brown or educated or illiterate, no matter if you're male or female, what the whole world is really looking for is Jesus. If you're an astronomer, he is the bright and morning star. If you're an architect, he is the chief cornerstone. If you're a baker, he is the bread that came down from heaven. If you're a carpenter, he's the door. If you're a doctor, he's the great physician. If you're an electrician, he's the light of the world. If you're a farmer, he's the lord of the harvest. If you're a horticulturist, he's the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. If you're a jeweler, he's the pearl of great price. If you're a king, he's the king of kings and the lord of lords. If you're a lawyer, he's our advocate with the father. If if you're a mortician, he's the resurrection and the life. If you're an optometrist, he made a blind man see. If you're a psychologist, he's the wonderful counselor. If you're a student, he's the truth. If you're a traveler, he's the way. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. He's Jesus. And what the whole world needs is Jesus. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Come on, son. Every head bowed, every eye closed. How many of you just need to say, Lord, I need to fall in love with you all over again. Lord, I have not had a passion in my life to reach the lost like I used to have. Lord, I want that back. Lord, in the midst of all the theology and the, and the reading and the Hebrew and the Greek and the politics and philosophy and all the educational classes, Lord, sometimes I feel so dead on the inside. I don't have a fire burning in my life, but Lord, I want to because I love you and I want you to use me, Lord. I mean, if you say, I really want the Lord to use me. I want to bring others. To, if that's you, stand up all over this place. Just stand up before the Lord. Won't you stand up because somebody else stood up. You stand up. Lift your hands toward heaven and just say, Lord, give me a passion. Give me boldness. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. Help me to fall in love with you again. Help me to go tell. tell say, say that, Lord, help me to go tell. Wherever I am, wherever I go, help me to be bold. Because I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. Lift your hands. Come on, sing it, son. Jesus, we love you. Come on, man, sing it. Love you. 
how we love you. Oh, how we love you. Oh, I want to love you with all my heart, Jesus. You are the one our hearts adore. Jesus, we If your mom is lost, say her name to the Lord Jesus right now. God save my mama. Just tell, tell the, the Lord knows her, but it's good to say her name. If your daddy's lost, lift him up before the Lord right now. If your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, somebody you love and, and you, you, you work with them every day and you know they don't know the Lord, they, they, they're still looking and you have the, just cry out to God right now. Lord, save my best friend. God, save my co-worker. God, save my little brother. He's so lost. God, save my little sister. Jesus, I want them not to be religious, not to just go to church. I want them to really know you, Lord. Save them. Thank you once again for listening to the Criswell College Chapel Podcast. Please make sure to visit criswell.edu to learn more about Criswell College. We hope that you will join us again soon. God bless you.